0: All right, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. In the first five chapters here in Romans, um, we saw a couple of things. Uh, Paul dealt with the problem of sin. And then in chapter 3, we saw the offer of salvation. Paul made it as clear as possible that mankind was screwed up. Mankind is, was, will be, sinful, vile. They love to live in debauchery to the point that they literally choose wickedness over choosing God himself. And with that, in chapter 1, it says three times that God gave them over. Some of you probably remember that. And based, that basically is saying that God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. If that's the way you want to live, if that's the life you want, fine. Fine then go right ahead and do it. First time he used those words, God gave them over, was to the sinful desires of sexual impurity. Secondly, it was to the shameful lusts when he speaks of homosexuality. And then thirdly, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then going right into chapter 2, we began to see words like, do you think you will escape God's judgment? You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. There will be trouble or distress for every human being who does evil. And then going into to chapter 3, for those who Paul did not seem to think they're going to get it, he says things like, there is no one righteous. No one He says, Not even one. Their throats, he says, are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers is on their lips. But then all of a sudden, Paul shares how Jesus Christ can change every bit of that. Right here in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Paul says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Stop right there. So he says that it is through faith, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that even though we are a sinful disaster, he says we can be forgiven, we can be declared righteous. Matter of fact, for the sake of the Jews who were, who were there in Rome, and certainly many who were in the church, Paul brought this all the way back, this understanding of faith, he brought it all the way back to Abraham. There in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, and by the way, he says that because that's what the Jews believed. He says, if it's true that Abraham was justified by works, that means he had something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, he says, Well, what does the scripture say? That's the bottom line, right? He says, Abraham believed God. There's the faith. Abraham, going all the way back, he believed God. He had faith in God. He says, and that faith, that belief, was credited to him as righteousness. Well, this thought continued all the way through chapter 5, as Paul spoke on, uh, through faith, how much we have in Christ. We have forgiveness, redemption mercy. We have grace. We have grace overflowing. Here in chapter 5, looking at verse 15 as well as verse 17, Paul says, but the gift is not like the trespass, meaning the gift of God is not like the trespass of Adam. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, meaning Adam, three words, how much more did God's grace And the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Verse 17. For if, and that word if should be since, for since by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, since death reigned through the one man, here they are again, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace And the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then, as you know, we ended last week in verses 20 and 21, which says the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But, he says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So after Paul had spoken on sin and then salvation, salvation meaning uh, deliverance is what that means, to deliver us from that sin, God's grace, in case you didn't know, you see the word grace a lot. God's grace became the subject matter. And Paul explained how God's grace is exceedingly amazing no matter the sin. God's grace is greater. He said this actually in verse 20, as we mentioned and we went through last week. But he had to preface that by saying, why God's grace is great. He said, the law was added. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, through the giving of the law, if you remember, sin multiplied. God gave his law, all of a sudden people were breaking that law more and more. Sin multiplied. Now, as I stated all the way back in verse thirteen here in chapter five, before the law was actually given, sin was already in the world. Okay, but in the time of Moses, when God brought, uh, when he brought forth the law, the trespass—that was the word that was used—the trespass. Remember, that is a a direct violation of God's command. Right? That is what a trespass is. You directly violate God's command that increased exponentially. Okay? With so much sin, and now all this trespasses, what that caused people to see is that they have a sin problem. We have an issue, see? And this is good, by the way, because outside of declaring God's righteous standard, that's what the law was for. That was the purpose, to show people they fall woefully short of God's holy standards. You might remember from Galatians 3.24, he says the law was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ. That, he says, we might be justified by faith. You see two things there, what the law was for and how we're saved. We're not saved through the law. He says the law led us to Christ. It pushed us to Christ. He says we're justified by faith. That faith is how we came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. But the starting point, okay, that which allows us to even be saved by grace, by faith, is the grace of God. Okay, yeah, we're saved by faith. The only reason we're being saved by faith is because of God's grace allows it, okay? Think about that. Go back to Ephesians 2.8. Many of you know that. For it is by grace that you are saved. You catch the first part? Through faith, okay? We access through the faith, our faith in Christ, we access God's amazing grace. But there's more. The second half of verse 20 says, but where sin increased, right? That's because of the law, right? Grace, he says, increased all of the more. God's grace increased all the more. This should remind you of those three words that I've already read twice today. How much more, right? Folks, God's grace doesn't run out. No matter the person or the type of sin, No matter the amount of sin, when a person desires to repent of those sins, to place their faith in Jesus Christ, God's God's grace has open arms. No matter what the sin is. And as we see in verse 21, it's God's grace that is working in tandem with the Lord Jesus Christ. He said there in verse 21, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace was given and grace was received through the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in concluding that chapter, chapter 5, really the the section of chapters 1 through 5, if we boil it all down, all from chapter 1 through chapter 5, Paul is really speaking on the subject matter of justification. Okay? What is it to be made right with God? What is it to be declared righteous by God? Okay? Now, as we head into chapters 6 through 8, this morning we're just beginning chapter 6, Paul is now going to shift to the subject of sanctification okay and this of course is the process of being made holy this is the practical effect of those who are being saved say that again this is the practical effect of those who are saved okay so first justification you're made right with God sanctification you're being made holy Therefore, being justified, being saved, being redeemed, being forgiven, okay? Folks, that was just the beginning of our relationship with God, okay? Yes, we are, right now, positionally declared righteous because of Christ's death on our part. God looks at us through the filter of the blood of Christ and sees us as righteous through Him, okay? But practically, practically, you and I still have a whole lot of work to do. We haven't arrived yet. God has a plan for us that we will not be the same people as we used to be. As much as God has transformed us when we were justified, right? We went from death to life. Spiritually speaking, we went from death to life, right? That still needs to be played out in our lives. Okay, this this uh, this maturation, also called the sanctification process, is a lifelong development. Christianity is not, never has been, some kind of life insurance policy where we are simply protected from God's wrath. Right? And now that we have that taken care of, we paid our premium. Well, we can just go back to living a depraved life. It's never been that way. As Paul will say later in chapter 8, verse 29, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Matter of fact, that's why numerous scriptures say things like 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is just one verse or one section. He says, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander of every kind. Okay? Now, by the way, that's not exhaustive. That's just a few things. Rid yourselves of these. He says, then, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that you may, hence the word, grow up, mature, if you will, in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, you can reverse that. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, hence justification, you need to crave pure spiritual milk that you may grow up, that you may mature in your salvation. So when one comes to faith in Jesus Christ, he begins a continual transformation. Now keep in mind, as we transition into chapter 6 this morning, uh, as you're going to see, Paul anticipates some form of opposition. Uh, he anticipates a critic of his theology. Okay, Remember, folks, uh, as Paul has taught in the previous chapters, we are not saved by the law. Right? We've, we've went through that. He also teaches that we don't live under the law. The law does not transform us. It convicts us, right? It does convict us. Remember, I read it a little bit ago, Galatians 3.24. The law leads us to Christ. It reveals how sinful we are, right? We need a savior from that sin. It pushes us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith, okay? Paul has taught thus far, In this book, that we are justified by grace alone, you know this, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's a reason the Reformers use those terms, because that's what Scripture teaches. Paul has taught that from the beginning. And because of that, for some, they believe that Paul has set aside Kicked to the curb the moral law of God. Saved by grace? Just faith? Just belief? What about God's holy standards, Paul? That's their thought. And in their minds, part of their evidence for this belief is based on what Paul said right there at the end of chapter 5. Right? Verse 20. What did it say? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Okay? With that statement, Paul anticipates some detractors. Okay? And he will therefore begin chapter 6 with what he believes is their response. Okay? He's going to begin chapter 6 with what he believes is their response to what he's been saying. Notice verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Stop there. This is what Paul thinks they're thinking about his theology. Wait a second, Paul. So are you saying that we should just go on sinning that grace may increase? This is how he's he's doing this, see? But once again, folks, this is how Paul feels certain people are going to say about his teaching on grace. Grace. Paul is teaching, uh, Paul, I maybe should say it this way, Paul is teaching that we don't have to live under the law anymore and that we can just, just keep on sinning and that this, this grace will just overflow. Well, believe it or not, those are the, the same kind of antinomian beliefs that many people have. In other words, just live your life as if there's no law. Just continue in sin, because God's amazing grace will just cover it. It's all good. And with that, everyone will know the goodness of God. Everyone will see the mighty grace of God. There are some people who actually believe that. Paul actually mentioned something very similar to this just a couple chapters ago in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. If you want to turn back there, you can do so. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Something very similar. One page too far. He says, in verse 7, listen, listen to how he starts it. He says, someone might argue, sounds just like verse 6, doesn't it? Chapter 6. He's thinking of what somebody else is going to say. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? He's thinking somebody's going to think that. If I I can live in sin and it increases the glory of God, then what's the problem? Why are you mad at me? Why can't I do that? Why am I being judged? What I'm doing makes God look good. He says in verse 8, Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some claim that we say, people are claiming that Paul is saying, let us do evil that good may result. People are saying that about Paul. Oh, dude, we could just do evil because good will result. God will get the glory. Right? It's very similar to what we're dealing with now. Now, to me, This comes across as not so much, hey, I want God to get the glory. To me, this comes across as people's desire to live in sin with no consequences. That's the key. It's a mindset that says, hey, my sin brings so much much, uh, character, if you will, to God. Judgment should be out of the question. Listen, folks, whether it's in this letter by Paul, or it's in your local newscast that you watch every night. People always want to rationalize their sin. Always. Maybe you use the word justify their sin. And that includes Christians. We want to justify our sin. And what could be a better result than saying, yeah, but Darren, it gives God the glory. (laughs) Right? Put those kind of words out. Nobody's going to argue with that. Nobody's going to call me out of my sin if I say, but my sin brings the glory to God. Who's going to say anything to me? Now, on the flip side, you have just the opposite. Some are going to say, How dare you pull the law out of the Christian life? That's only going to lead to more sin. God's law must keep people in line. Laws keep people under control. By the way, it's the exact same argument that we saw in the early church, and we can read about, which we will right now, in Acts chapter 15. Many of you know this. Acts chapter 15, it's typically called the Jerusalem Council. But here, you have the the mindset in the early church, you can't get rid of the law. You have to have the law. By the way, there are still people who believe that today. But in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. And it says that they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So here's what took place. Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this Question: The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Listen to verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees they stood up and they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Well the apostles and the elders met to consider this question hence, by the way, the Jerusalem council, they met to consider this question. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and he answered them. We addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts. How? By faith. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? That yoke is the law. Why are you trying to give the law? Our ancestors couldn't keep it. We can't keep it. Why on God's earth would you be trying to push it on the believers is what he's saying. Verse 11, no, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay? Now, we see here how this ended up. Okay? I know everybody got to look this direction. We see how this ended up. We just got through reading it. Okay? But it never stopped people from trying to add the law to grace. Okay? This is what the whole book of Galatians is about. They're trying to add the law to grace. Salvation, folks, is by grace through faith, and therefore the law isn't necessary. It can't save you anyway. And so that being said, There are still going to be those who accuse Paul of laying aside, kicking to the curb, don't need it anymore, the moral law of God, and therefore giving people a license to live in sin, to to live however they want, all under the umbrella of grace. That's what they're thinking. So what Paul does, back to Romans chapter 6. So what Paul does is he gives them the answer to the question that he knows his critics are asking. Okay? Verse 1, once again. What shall we say then, Paul? Are you saying we should go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul? And what does he say? By no means. Stop right there. Is that what you're saying, Paul? No, I'm not. So Paul here, he shuts down the question really as fast as he asks it. Shall we continue to sin? Absolutely not. Right? Or as maybe your grandparents used to say, perish the thought. You guys might remember that term. But that's what it's saying. Folks, this is the strongest declaration of a rejection in the New Testament Greek. It cannot be a stronger rejection than that. It carries this this sense of outrage that any notion of any kind could be, how could this ever be thought of as true? Okay? Almost like you're saying, how dare you? is what that's saying. It's a response of shock that such a question can even be brought to the table. One commentary put it, the thought of a believer living in sin in order to to take advantage of grace is abhorrent to the Apostle Paul. William Hendrickson says he's disgusted by the very suggestion. That's, That's literally how this is placed in the original language, right? No way. By no means. Absolutely not. And therefore, you find the rest of verse 2. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So Paul, in my mind, he, he, he bursts out. It's like if he's giving this sermon. He bursts out with with a, a spiritual or a theological truth, followed by a practical truth. Okay? Spiritually speaking, he says here, we died to sin. Are you saying, Paul, that we can live in sin that grace may increase? No way. We died to sin. Now, this is going to get talked about in the next few verses, um, so I'm not going get, to get all into it this morning, but, but basically he's saying this. He's saying in the past, okay, and or really, this is what's called an aorist tense in the Greek, okay, uh, which is basically uh, a once and for all, uh, something that happened once and for all in the past, okay? Once and for all, it's done, but it happened in the past. Okay. So in the past at a at a specific point in time, what you and I would call the time of our salvation, right? At that moment in the past, we died to sin. When we placed our faith in Christ, when we repented of those sins and turned to him as our savior and lord, we died to sin. To die to something, folks, is To say, I have nothing to do with it. To be totally separated from it. uh, To renounce my allegiance to it. Okay? That's the flip side of belief or faith. The flip side of the the coin is repentance. I'm turning from something. If I'm turning to Christ, I have to be turning from something, don't I? Yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes. I have to turn from this life turn from sin in order to turn to Jesus Christ. I am renouncing my life, my allegiance to sin. Now, that does not mean that I'm perfect and I will therefore never sin again. First John chapter 1 verse 8 makes that very clear. If you believe that you are deceiving yourself, that is baloney is the theological word of the day. Doesn't happen. Dying to sin does not mean that you will be free from it, as if you'll never sin again. It means sin's power is no longer dominating your life. You will no longer, quote, live, or live continually, live habitually. You will no longer live that way in sin. We have, still have, a sin nature, okay? Okay? but through God's what I call a spiritual surgery it does not any longer govern or control our everyday lives. We died to sin. That is not what I live for. That is not what I focus on. See? I may fall short once in a while, but that is not my direction any longer. Which is why Paul follows that, by the way, with the practical truth of saying, "How can we live in it any longer?" Right, Death, I don't know if you caught the play on words from Paul, death and life are incompatible, are they not? Believers cannot live in sin who have died to sin. Right? You can't live in sin if you've died to it. The thought of a Christian who can continually or habitually live in the same sin as they did before they were saved, literally makes no theological sense or practical sense really either. How can someone be born again, right? The Bible uses that term, born again. It simply means, in Titus, it means a spiritual rebirth. Spiritual rebirth. You're different than who you were before. How can you be born again, have a spiritual rebirth? How can God call us and tell us that that we we are a new creation in Christ? How can he say like he did here, that we have died to sin and yet somehow be living in a perpetual state of of sin? It doesn't make any sense. In 1 John 3, verse 6, 1 John is a great book to go to in things like this. He says, no one who lives in him, no one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. That's a present tense. Ongoing, habitually lives in sin. No one who continues to sin, he says, has either seen him or known him. Okay? remember in that, I can't remember the verse, but in that very same area, he says, the one who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. That's pretty strong language. Three verses later here in 1 John 3, 9, he says, No one who is born of God will continue in sin. The word that he's looking at there is the word practice. They will not practice or continually practice sin, which means you live in sin. That's who you are. You wake up, you sin. The decisions you make, you choose to sin. No one who was born of God will continue to sin. He says because God's seed remains in him. He cannot, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Folks, it's one thing to, and, and we all do, it's one thing to fight the battle and occasionally fall to the flesh. It's something else completely to never even jump into the fight. You're not even part of the battle because you always choose sin. That's not the Christian life. See, that's not being sanctified. Really, it shows you probably weren't justified. See. Now, sadly, there are those who believe that God will justify someone, but will not sanctify them. It's to say that he will save you, but he's not going to change you. There are those who do believe that one very well-known person, he has passed away now, Uh, his name is Zane Hodges. Zane Hodges was a Bible teacher. He was a professor at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary. It's a good seminary, but uh, he... If you look up Zane Hodges, you'll see that he had some different views on things. He believed that one does not necessarily have to persevere in faith in order to be saved. And by this perseverance, he meant that a saved individual did not have to have either good works or even continue in his faith in order to be saved. Once a person believed in Jesus, once a person prayed that prayer, he was as good as gold. I met somebody like that when I was in California. I was there when he prayed the prayer. I was right there. Tears were running down his eyes. I know he's saved. But yet he lives a continual life of ongoing sin. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 speaks of former pagans. Paul actually calls them wicked. But, it's important, but he speaks of those as they are now washed. They are now justified and sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The key, I think, and, and growing, maturing, sanctification is the fact that God gave us his Holy Spirit. God did not give every believer his Holy Spirit for bragging rights. Hey, you know what I have? God's Spirit lives within us to work with us, to convict us, to comfort us, to all the different words you see in Scripture, to come alongside of us, the parakletos is what he is called. He's there to empower us to do what God has called us to do. see, Matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2 1, listen to what it says. It, sa- it speaks of the, quote, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it even says it plain in there for the obedience to Jesus Christ. I mean, it just says it all in the same verse. The sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. James chapter 2. an epistle he asks the question and then he actually answers it can a faith that doesn't produce works can it be saving faith can you have saving faith without a life to show it in chapter 2 verse 17 he says faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead right You know why, folks? Because saving faith is life-changing. It's life-changing. See? It's not just justifying, it is sanctifying. We have been justified. We are now currently being, or in the process of being, sanctified. We, one day, will be what? glorified this whole misunderstanding in the text that paul is writing on it really it's because of a wrong idea of what somebody and paul knew it already because he obviously brought it up himself it, it's the wrong idea of what it means where sin increased grace increased all the more it shows you what can happen if you don't look or interpret or understand Scripture correctly, rightly, and if you just have a desire to sin and you're looking for an excuse to sin. See? The focus in that text is not to be on man's sin, but it is to focus on how massive, how great the emphasis is on God's grace. It's not there for, to cover man's sin. It's to show the grace of God. There is no sin that is too great that God cannot forgive it. There is no collective amount of sin from any individual that God cannot cover. That's the point. But not only that, but God will continue his grace after sanctification and will produce in us somebody different. Seth mentioned this morning we should not be the same person we were last year or the year before. The year before, because we are in that process of being made holy, maturing in our relationship with the Lord, and that, of course, is uh, the subject matter of all of chapters six, seven, and eight. But in going through this, uh, uh, partly of chapter five and into chapter six, you 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 cannot think of. I shouldn't say cannot think. You, you cannot not. I guess, how do you say that in the positive? <laughs> you got to think of the old hymn, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Anybody know that one? Remember that one? Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. It says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount, outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your grace. As I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, I I, I must admit I never had a heavy focus on my heart on the grace of God until you realize that uh, if it wasn't for your grace, we wouldn't even have the opportunity to be saved. It starts with your grace. We can have all the faith we want, but it's irrelevant if you would not allow Jesus to pay our sin debt. You had to be satisfied, propitiated by what Jesus did. And that is your grace. You allowed us to be saved because of what Jesus did. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that, that you looked at us as sinners and said, I, I still want to give them eternal life if they would turn and put their faith in my son. Lord, we thank you that uh, knowing that you're not done with us yet. We know it's a struggle. We know it's hard. We, we, we fight it sometimes. We fight doing the right thing because we We still have that nature, and and, and sometimes it overwhelms us. But God, we thank you that you will sanctify us. For those you justify, you will sanctify. We thank you, Lord, that you will change us. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. It's there. And help us, Lord, to be sensitive to that. Help us to look to your word. Help us to look in our past life, to examine our own life, examine ourselves, have things changed within me. Do I still desire and walk the ways that I used to? Or am I in that process? Am I allowing God to change me to the person that he wants me to be? Lord, help us all as we struggle, we fail, but to get back up and to move forward to be that very person. Let me give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.